your body remembers the trauma. What do you mean by that? Whenever we experience any kind of external turmoil, our bodies are responding to that turmoil. A large majority of the people on earth will have undergone some level of trauma. Some of us have repressed our childhoods and don't remember a large part of it. The mind, it has a protective function and mechanism to actually disengage from anything that has been deeply hurtful so that we can survive life. You do not have to forgive in order to heal generational wounds. You have to lose the part of yourself that was stuck in cycles. There's a lot of losing that takes place. And what we oftentimes don't address is back everyone to Diary of an Empath. I'm so excited to introduce my next guest, Dr. Marielle Bouquet. She's a leading trauma psychologist, a professor, a sound bath meditation healer, which I love by the way. She's a speaker. She's appeared on many platforms such as Good Morning America, The Today Show, many leading magazines, many leading media outlets around the world. And she's the author of the new groundbreaking book, Break the Cycle. Dr. Bouquet, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to finally be here. It's um, been a long time desire to join you in conversation. So thank you for having me. I'm excited. I've I've watched you grow and um, like really, really grow. And I, I find it so I love when I see people who I've been following for a long time, who have just flourished so much in their career and doing work that's so, so very important. So for you, if I had to ask you, what was your mission? And why is it important to you? How would you define that? Hmm. You know, I think that my mission has kind of remained somewhat the same with some variation as to how I basically carry out some variation as to how I carry out that mission. Um, and the mission itself has been to make healing tools accessible, um, which is in part like what I'm hoping I can do with this book, Break the Cycle. It's Literally, like everything that I do in the therapy room, all the practices, all the orientation and psychoeducation that I offer my clients, and the reflection of that in a, a literary form. So it's me saying, you know, I know therapy is expensive. I know it's very inaccessible, especially right now, post-pandemic, so many long waits uh, to actually get into a treatment room to work with someone. But here are some tools that can be used in, in the interim, right, or in conjunction with, with a therapist or a healer that can really deepen the work for you and, and help you feel like you're, you know, kind of like making headway toward breaking the, these cycles. Mm -hmm. And one thing I love about you is you just have this very calming, approachable energy. And not a lot of people have that. And I think that's why a lot of people are attracted to your, your page, especially your tea time. But what do I need to understand about you and your past to understand the woman that I'm looking at now? Hmm. Lovely question and the framing. Well, you know, I I come from a very wounded past myself. Um, part of why I grew in my um, like my interest in in your work and in your um, podcast is because I myself have identified as like a tender soul for really the entirety of my life. I actually used to get this, what was seen as a compliment, and I still kind of feel somewhat uh, like it is, but it, people used to say to my mom, like, 
I, her neighbors, I could never tell that you actually had a, a baby, a kid in there because it's just so quiet. They're so quiet. As mm. a toddler, so quiet. And in reality, what was happening um, was that I was like very much an ingester of my environment in a very profound way. And I constantly felt overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Like I was just like a, a, a ball of emotion and it was just like so contained. Mm-hmm. Um, so really for a long period of time, I, I had a container that was like really tightly wound up. And that was just the the general way in which I managed to survive through a lot of circumstances in early childhood and um, which then developed into circumstances that I later, you know, had to undergo like in my adult life. Um, And I myself am someone who's an intergenerational trauma survivor. So the work is relatable to me on a personal end as much as it is on a professional end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, same here with me. You know, growing up, I was always very much highly emotional. And I always would say it's my weakness. Like I hate how emotional I am. I hate how sensitive I am. And as I got older, and I talk about this a lot, how once I learned to have tools in my toolbox, I learned that it was actually more of my strength. And just like you, the the intergenerational trauma piece that was carried down from my grandparents to my mother to her siblings, to me and my cousins. It's very, very strong. Chapter nine of your book, it talks about when collective trauma enters the home. We are experiencing a lot of collective trauma right now as a nation. And I think we're all feeling it at a very, very high level. You talk about if it feels like too big of a task. And I want to actually quote this. It says, remember that one small change by any one of us is compounded with the efforts of others. Eventually our collective efforts lead to tangible changes that we can see in our generation. And if you ever feel stuck, be mindful of some of the major internal messages that can keep us in inaction. What are some of those internal messages? Mm. This is, uh, this is, one of the hardest things for me to write and put into context for all of us to be able to digest. So thank you for, for acknowledging it. Um, and some of the hardest things or some of the things that can keep us in inaction would be uh, believing that intergenerational trauma and collective trauma are not interconnected. Uh, believing that, you know, the history that is being reflected in and, and being enacted right now is not history that will live in us. And even if it if the issues that are permeating society right now, even if we find a way to cut them loose and and do away with them, that these issues, the idea that these issues won't come back to haunt us, both in, you know, mind, body, and spirit, but also culturally and structurally is, um, is erroneous. The idea that anything that um, is a topic related to oppression of another group of people that it has nothing to do with us. It does. It's our collective history and it's the ways in which we then decide what kind of legacy we're going to leave for the next generation. Um, and, and, and many, many others, right? Like I feel like there are ways in which we can distance, um, whether subconsciously or consciously dissociate from what's happening in our world. And, assume no fault so as to not have to assume responsibility, which would then promote us into taking action rather than staying in inaction. 
it was so powerful when I was reading this. And there was one part that you you mentioned here, believing that we're not complicit in the continuation of collective traumas, especially anyone who upholds the values of a toxic system, even if they themselves are the people whom the system oppresses. And this is so important because I feel like sometimes we think that, and that's another one of your points is believing that it has nothing to do with you. Mm -hmm. When collective trauma affects all of us and, and really in a sense, I think that people don't think that it affects them or they don't know how to take action on that collective trauma. And you talk about the collective trauma or trauma itself being stored in the body or that your body remembers the trauma. What do you mean by that? Well, our bodies are depositories for a lot of the things that happen to us in day-to-day -day life. So whenever we experience any kind of like external turmoil, our bodies are responding to that turmoil. They're reacting to everything that happens to us. And more specifically, um, a large part of what I explain in the book and what I tend to explain um, to folks overall is that a large part of those experiences get registered in our nervous system and our nervous system responds to the social environment in ways that sometimes can even become the default way that our nervous systems tend to respond. Um, to, to get a better understanding of this, like I think it helps to actually understand how the nervous system is structured. Our nervous system has three parts that in essence, like, work in tangent with one another. The first of which is the the initial threat alert system, which is our sympathetic response, which is we kind of like understand it as fight or flight. And what happens is that we notice that there is a potential threat in our environment and we prepare to either fight the actual threat or we flee away from it. We avoid it. However, if that threat is entirely too big, if it's acute, if it's um, threatening our life, if it's um, a threat that perhaps is even chronic, meaning like we're suffering from chronic abuse and it feels inescapable, what happens is that we go into what we call the dorsal vagal response. Uh, and that response is um, freezer fawn. And what that is, freeze is basically like you're just kind of like frozen, dissociative. Fawn is appeasing, people-pleasing, trying to make the threat go away so you can finally breathe. But in between those two, we have what we call the parasympathetic response or the ventral vagal response, alternatively. And that is what helps us to relax and feel ease and feel rest and go from that fight or flight into rest and recovery, and never really enter the dorsal vagal response, the emotional shutdown. However, if we are in living a life where we are perpetually in a state of chronic stress, we are in a state of trauma, and that trauma is going on unresolved for years, what's happening is that our, our bodies, our nervous system is now defaulting to a threat response in a chronic way. And so our default would be to always go into fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. For some people, you know, as soon as they perceive that anybody might be slighting them, they go right into fight. And that is a nervous system response. That's a trauma response that's situated in the body. Most often than not, we think, oh, it's just that person saying something out of their mouth. Mm 
not realizing that their entire body and every cell within their body is actually committed to protecting them in that moment, which is why they're saying the words that they're saying. Mm -hmm. Their body is in survival mode and it's saying, you must release this threat. You must make it go away, which is why they're saying what they're saying in order to protect themselves. But more often than not, we don't incorporate that understanding of the body into the understanding of why people are responding a certain way. And I think that if we do start integrating that knowledge in a way that is hopefully like permeates through society as our common day-to-day language of what's happening when we're feeling hurt and we're feeling like we need to protect ourselves, I think we can have a lot more compassion in this world and a lot more tools that can be helpful with, you know, these responses. I like how you broke it down. And I've talked to a lot of people about the nervous system and, uh, that's probably one of the, the, the best answers that I've heard. Um, you know, here's the thing about the nervous system and what you said. It reminds me, and I take it back to my own personal stuff, and there's two people in my life, and I'm, I'm pretty open on my pod. Um, so those who listen, they know, you know, there, there's two people in my life, though, that really trigger that nervous system reaction. And when I think about those two people, which is my mom and my ex-husband, it always ties back to the abuse that was associated with them. And with both of them, it is a freeze or a fawning. And for a long time, it was the fawning and then it became a freeze. Till this day, my nervous system prepares. So I prefer to only text because if I have to talk on the phone and if I have to see someone in person, it's very, very hard for my body to feel safe. It's very hard for my body to relax. It's very hard for me to express myself emotionally. And I think a lot of people who have been through abuse they don't, they, it's almost like they don't have control over their reactions when it comes to um, how their nervous system reacts around certain people, or even in times and places where they should feel safe. And like, it's like your brain knows, but sometimes your body just reacts because it's all it knows how to do. So for somebody who's maybe gone through a toxic relationship, or maybe they've seen mom go through a toxic relationship and now they're going through these same patterns. This trauma is collectively going from like one generation to another, and maybe they've had chronic stress and now that's how they react with their partners. Where do we start with that? How do we start to teach ourselves and teach our bodies that it's safe now. Maybe we're no longer in these situations. Maybe we don't want to be in toxic relationships anymore, but how do we teach our bodies? It's going to be okay. It's going to be safe. I love that your question is how do we teach our bodies? Um, Because very often the questions that I get are very mind-based. And quite frankly, the mind is going to have a really hard time doing what we needed to do if our body is in survival mode. So the body is the place where we need to go first, even in the book and even in my work itself. Like when I'm like working with clients, the initial place where we start working is in the body. And then we transition into the digging work. Well, what has been hurting? How many generations have been hurting? That's all the digging. And then we transition into integration. Well, how do we get you into a place where your core self and your legacy building is in alignment? But the initial place where we start engaging in the work is situated in the body, in the nervous system, and in holistic practices that we integrate into their life as a lifestyle, not just as a reactionary response to when stress comes up. And the reason why is because from a neurological standpoint, 
we have an understanding that body memory is actually a memory that can, that actually can be transformed comparably fairly quickly comparably to like mind memory for example and what that means is that we each one of us needs an approximate 3 to 400 repetitions of a body centered practice or response in order to help it be more of the default that we experience, which means that if we, if our default is to fight and we want our default to be feeling more settled so that we don't go jump, jump into fight, we need at least three to 400 moments of engaging in holistically grounded, like therapeutic practices so that we can, our nervous system can say, this is my new normal. Mm. And when I say three to 400, people oftentimes think that's a lot. I thought maybe like five or 10 and I would be done. And we have to think about two things. One, many of us are actually undoing decades and sometimes centuries of nervous systems that have been stuck in fight mode, that have been stuck in flight mode, freeze and fawn. So we're doing a lot of heavy lifting. So we do need the repetitions. And two, three to 400 is actually not that much when you think about it from the perspective of years. If, for example, some of us have been living on this earth for multiple decades, but if we take first starters one year of our lives and engage in five-minute deep breathing at the top of our day, a sound bath meditation at the bottom of our day, each and every day for 365 days, we've already completed a large portion of the task of helping our nervous system to feel more settled at the end of the year, which is why I'm so excited that this book is actually coming out at the very top of the year, because that is a huge suggestion that I make in a lot of the conversations that I have. Like I'm like, mm -hmm. take the year, take the mm -hmm. year and do the work, really ground yourself in the healing, be intentional about your practice. Don't skip on your practice. I know life becomes busy, right? But if you start your day with at the very least five minutes of something that can actually bring you some level of restoration, it already gives you a, a healthier start to what you would have started with. In chapter 10 of your book, you talk about grieving your traumatic lineage. And there's a section where you talk about breaking up with shame. I think shame is something we don't talk about, but we all experience it. And when I think about trauma and breaking the cycle, you know, I, it, it took a lot for me to realize that I was grieving a part of not, not just a part of myself, but people in my life, including my mom, who I, I'll never have the mom that I wanted. And that was me having to grieve that idea of what that would be. So when you, when you talk about shame and grief, when it comes to trauma, what does that look like? It looks really heavy and it's also incredibly necessary. So shame is one of the, if not the most powerful emotion that is present whenever trauma enters the picture. And shame can actually keep a lot of people um, in the position of being cycle keepers, like they're not breaking cycles. They, they're too ashamed to really face the truth. 
and understand um, that they need to take action in order to not replicate the damage that's been done. And shame can also be a, a motivator because it, it can make people feel like, you know what, this this sucks. I don't want this. Um, it, it, I feel like wholly like a bad or broken person. Um, I want to get out of it. And, and so, you know, a person can stay stuck in inaction or be motivated to actually produce, you know, um, a cycle breaking path. But, um, the thing about all of these things is that it's going to inevitably push you into an existential crisis. Any one of us who has to confront the fact that we've been keeping cycles who have to confront the fact that we've had people in our families that have both loved us and hurt us, that we have to, you know, confront um, the possibility or the the likelihood that we have to step out of the shadows and be the people to air the dirty laundry, as they call it, take the secrets out of the game, and and really proclaim. Um, a new legacy and a new truth for ourselves and for our children and our children's children. All of that requires that you lose a part of yourself. You have to lose the part of yourself that was stuck in cycles. You have to lose the part of yourself that believed that your family had no flaws because now you can see them with eyes of truth and understand that they are flawed humans and can be hurtful. You have to lose the part of you that wasn't thinking about what kind of impact you will have on the people that come after you. There's a lot of losing that takes place. And what we oftentimes don't address and and really like take responsibility for as people in the mental health field is the process of loss that happens when a person has to shed the shedding season is always going to be filled with, you know, what you're leaving behind. But a really important part of that is also replenishing because you're leaving a void if you're not replenishing with what else, what's going to take the place of the shedding. You're releasing something, but what's going to be placed in that hole? And so all of that is literally what we go through whenever we're in grief, when we lose somebody in our lives. It's the same thing. It's just that you're losing the idea of somebody, the idea of yourself that you held on to, the idea of people in your family that you've held on to, the idea of the world feeling like the world is this just world and mm-hmm. you know doesn't impose upon the bodies of women, doesn't like, you know, um assail um communities of color, doesn't like um you know, prioritize the the voices of usually, you know, a select few and and that there's billionaires in this world and that there's people that can't eat, you know, like that, Mm -hmm. that we literally live in a world like that, that that is, it requires uh, grief. We grieve and we don't pay attention to that grief enough. And so my desire with this work, because it is both individual and collective trauma that we're helping to resolve, it is for us to enter that place of grief with intentionality, with tools and with, you know, an understanding that it's a temporary state, uh, but a necessary one. And that at 
on the other side of grief, we will feel lighter. Did you guys know that I'm not only a therapist, but I'm also a coach and a professional tarot reader? Now, it's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball telling your future. It's a way to connect with your guides on life issues such as career and love and spirituality. And sometimes people need one-on-one coaching to help them through breakups, toxic relationships, healing the mother wound, their spiritual path, or navigating tools as an empath. So I do all of these things to help my clients pursue life and decisions and understand themselves. So if you are interested in one-on-one coaching or a tarot reading, click the link below to get started. Okay, back to the podcast. What about people that ask the question, do I have to forgive or I'm not ready to forgive? What do you say to that? I say you do not have to forgive in order to heal generational wounds. It is in no way a prerequisite because we have to be honest about the fact that There are some people in our lives that did have access to healing, did have access to do better, did have resources or people in their ear saying, this isn't right. And they opted to continue to cause harm. Um, Or people that have caused such immense harm that for some of us, it's unforgivable. And it's really unfair to tell a survivor of any kind of injustice or abuse to then go back to the person that hurt them or even in in their own mind to think back to that person and offer forgiveness in order for them to to offer themselves a release from that person. It's, It's not a prerequisite at all. But there are some people that do want to do that work and that's to be honored. Um, some people even want to keep the relationship with some of the people that have hurt them, especially if they're parents that that happens very frequently or if they're a sibling. And, and, you know, we have to do some of the grieving of who they thought that person is um, in order to transition into a place of forgiveness. But there are a lot of people who are cycle breakers who are saying, you know what, I'm going to break these cycles, but I'm not going to forgive because that person had intent on hurting me and was deliberate. And I don't believe that that that's where I need to focus my efforts. I think for me, it wasn't necessarily forgiveness, but more acceptance and not acceptance of the the abuse or the trauma, but the acceptance that like my mom, for example, the acceptance that she had trauma herself and she didn't have the resources or the mindset or the capabilities to, to parent any differently. And for me, I think accepting the fact that these people are the way that they are and there's nothing that I can do or say to change them, but I do have to have some type of connection, whether it's to co-parent or whether it's to have, you know, my mom still in my life. I started to create change with how I reacted, not only with my boundaries, but also to know how I wanted to parent my daughter differently. My daughter's 15. And that was for me just kind of like the acceptance of knowing that and knowing that I don't want to I don't want to parent the way that my mom parented with my daughter. So I need to create some change, whether that's like really being aware of the relationships that I have in my life, the the way that I speak to her, the way that I, I talk about my own body in front of her. So for those that are parents and they don't want to create this trauma that continues down these cycles with their kids, and this is a loaded question because there's so many different ways to answer this. 
but how do we recognize that this the cycle has to stop with us and prevent that trauma from continuing to pass down the lineage it's such a hard question to answer but it, it's so hard for some people to to understand how does it stop with us yeah, the how is definitely the harder part, right? Which is in part why I wanted to create this uh, healing protocol as a book to help offer us an opportunity to really have a comprehensive format of how we stop it. I think that anybody that were to like engage with my work, it's more than likely already in a place where they're like, hmm, do I have cycles that I haven't broken? Are there things that hurt me? There's at least a little bit of curiosity. And there's some other people that are just very explicit, like I've got these cycles and they got to break. Mm -hmm. The important thing to understand is that um, m many of us, actually a, a large majority of the people on earth will, will have undergone some level of trauma not everybody's going to undergo trauma that's intergenerational and has roots in their childhood, but it is going to be important for any of us who have had those experiences to tune in and think about what was my childhood actually like? Some of us have repressed our childhoods and don't mm -hmm. remember a large part of it because that's it was, me. yeah, it's that hurtful. It's like, I don't want to, the mind, it's, it's a protective it has a protective function and mechanism to actually disengage from anything that has been deeply hurtful so that we can survive life. And so what it does is that it takes the memory out of the game. Um, and some of that is, is, is welcome. You know, we don't want to like remember every little thing and then like be bogged down by it. What we want to do is create a path for moving forward. So what I oftentimes help, especially parents, you know, to, to get oriented around is what are the, can you think back to the moments in your childhood where you felt like it's any emotion that felt really, really uncomfortable. You felt deep sadness, you felt some shame, like, you know, all the emotions that, that feel heavy, who was there, who was around you? What were they doing? Were they a parent? And how were they parenting you? And from there, you're already taking data that helps you understand what they did created this emotion in me. It didn't feel good. I don't want to replicate that in my child. And from there, you can start identifying ways that you can do things differently. What I find tends to be the, the most straightforward way for cycle breakers to break cycles is to, in essence, do the opposite. Um, I know my sister, she has a 16-year-old. And with her, I remember she would oftentimes have conversations with her son about the environments that he was going to go into. We were um, children that had to undergo a lot of change, and no one ever really talked to us about those changes. We emigrated to the U.S. That was a big change. Um, we had a, a parent who had to leave and when we couldn't be with him for 10 years because of immigration law. That was a big change. Mm. There were so many huge changes and there was never conversation. Mm -hmm. And so when 
my sister would like, it would literally be like she would go into the supermarket and she would say, sit there for at least a minute and talk to her son. Like, we're going to go in and we're going to buy some plantains and some cheese. And then after that, we're going to get back in the car. We're going to drive, you know, like just like really kind of like narrating his life. And I was always like, what is she doing? Mm -hmm. But she was basically doing the opposite. So instead of allowing this kid to basically figure out what's going on in his world, orienting him so that he would have an understanding of what's happening around his life. (laughs) (sighs) He's a cutie. Sorry. He can can come on camera. He wants to be on camera. (laughs) We are, we are, we are dog friendly here. So thank you for being dog friendly. He is such a, he, he loves to be behind me for most of the work day, but then he has like, Oh. He's very hyper, so he gets very excited. He needs some attention. I, oh, it's oh okay. My. He if he yeah. need, if he wants to come on, let him come on. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate. I appreciate the invitation. Of um, course. But yeah, you know, like my sister um, taught me a lot about cycle breaking parenting from the perspective of a place that's very personal because I was able to observe her parenting for the last sixteen years because I've I've been very involved. And it has been really critical even to my work and being able to orient parents around um, the opposite effects, right? Like if you don't have the tangible tools and the orientation and the understanding of what do I do that can be different, try the opposite and start there because the opposite is probably going to get you the opposite emotion reflected in your child. And that's in essence what you want. You know, it's so funny that you mentioned that your sister does that. I'm like that with my daughter. I didn't get explanation. I don't remember explanations to sex. I don't remember. I just figured it out, you know, sadly, way too young. And so I started and I think, too, because, you know, we're in the mental health therapy space. So, you know, she's got a mom for a therapist. So for me, it was always just very natural to explain to her this is how the body works. This is what we're going to be doing today. Or this is the plan for when we go to this trip. Um, This is, you know, what you should look out for when it comes to toxic traits and the opposite sex. And I have found that she is the most well-rounded, like she is sometimes it's like my mom. She's like, clean up the dishes. And I'm like, okay, mom, she's just, she's so smart and she's so highly intuitive for her age. And I think that's because she's She just has the knowledge that she needs to make her own informed decisions and understand her environment so she feels very safe. So to me, that is my cue that I'm breaking, that I'm actively breaking the cycles. And I I really have a lot of hope for our future generation because I feel like, is it Gen, not Gen Z? What is this generation, Gen X? Is it Gen Z? Gen Z. And then they have this other like superhuman generation coming after them. I don't know what their name is. Can't keep up. God, it's aging me. So I feel like this upcoming generation is so much better prepared than our generation. I feel like they're so open to mental health and they're so open to the healing and the generational stuff and, you know, energy and spirituality. So I have a lot of hope for this upcoming generation. There's, there's a quote that you said, I think it was in your book, or I can't remember if it was in your book or on your Instagram. And I love this quote. You have to get comfortable without growing your old wounded self. And I know we touched a little bit about that, but how do we get comfortable without growing our old self? 
Oh, I love this question. And this is one uh, that, again, personally and professionally, I've been able to bear witness to. And, you know, when we are able to treat our world and our healing process with curiosity and with tenderness, it allows us an opportunity to, to really step into that space where we're like kind of guiding ourselves in a way that's more gentle. And what I mean by that is like, I would be in my actual own therapy sessions. I'm talking 10 years ago and I would be in these sessions and I, you know, there would be times when I would be like, you know, in tears, a lot of the things that happen in therapy, but then there would be times when I would almost kind of jump out of my seat when session was over because the point of insight that we had gathered in that moment was something that I was like, I need to take this and like blossom it and run with it. Like, oh my goodness, like, yes, that's a part of the evolution. Yes, that's a part of what I what I desire in my life. What do I do now? Like, what can I do today that can be, you know, a mirror of that new, like intergenerational higher self that I want to embody? And so it's in 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 that approach to the process of healing that I think we can find a lot of lightness in it, especially with something that is so incredibly heavy, like generational trauma. Um, it can be very helpful to be able to, yes, you're going to hold the grief and hold the, the rage and all the, the heavy emotions, the shame, but there are moments that are going to come up and you're going to be like, oh my goodness, that is so fascinating. You know, maybe because I'm a total like psych nerd, maybe that's why <laughs> I was, <laughs> but I would be like, that's wild. And, and then the added bonus was like, I was like, I got to tell somebody about this. This is so, why don't we know this? And that's a part of why I started on social media. Cause I was like, people need to know this. Mm -hmm. Like, this is so important and it's helping me and I'm feeling lighter, even though it's mm -hmm. like insight that can have like heavy elements. So when we're like, searching for our core selves and shedding the old, we can also do that from a place of enlightenment and a place of lightness and a place of curiosity because there's space for that in the journey. You know, it's funny because I started my social media for the same reasons. Um, I have found more therapeutic healing doing my podcast and doing my social media, although it drains the hell out of me sometimes. But um, I, I really have found it very therapeutic um, to it's some it's funny, because sometimes I'll be talking to a guest, and I'll say something or sometimes if I'm a, a guest on a podcast, and I'll say something that I'm like, wait a minute, where did that come from? I'm like, I don't know if I just connected like my higher self is coming up. It, but that was really profound. And why didn't I ever think about this? Why didn't I ever come to this like, aha moment? And it's so amazing how that connection with the higher self just kind of happens with this healing process. And there's a quote that I another quote that I saw that I really loved um, that I personally resonated. And it was, I honor my past, but I don't let it define my future. Mm -hmm. Why is that mm -hmm. important? Because we cannot orient our lives only around trauma, even when trauma has been so prominent. Um, trauma is not the only part of our story. It's only a blip. It's only a, a portion of what has transpired. However, when we do hyper-focus on the traumatic elements of life, that's when a lot of these, as we call them, like mental health conditions become more evident. 
That's when, you know, we hyper-focus on the past, which is a breeding ground for depression. When we hyper-focus on the what-ifs or the, um, the future, we ha- we, it's a breeding ground for anxiety. So mm. when we are allowing for space to be, um, being in the present and having an understanding of here I am in this very moment, having a trauma history, but also having a healing history, also having a history of generational resilience, also having an immense amount of fortitude that is represented in me each and every day. Here I am with all of it. When we can center ourselves in that understanding, then it gives us an opportunity to be more well-rounded in our ideas of ourselves rather than just hyper-focused on the pain. I love that. I I want to ask you a question that it's kind of morbid, but I, I think it's important because we're all going to die one day. You know, we all know that our, our life here is limited. And so hopefully most of us are trying to live it to the best extent that we can. But how do you want to be remembered? My heart. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a beautiful question. Hmm. I want to be remembered as a soft place for people to land. Like I want to be remembered mm. for the gentleness that I have exuded and continue to exude for people to feel like there's safety here. Um, I want to remember for that. I, I believe that I could do anything in this world, um, good and bad, because uh, I'm a flawed human. But one thing that remains true and has for a very long time is my desire to create softness for all of us to be able to heal from that softness. So if people are able to remember me for that, um, I think that I I would have done a a good job at living. I think that's really accurate, a soft place for people to land, because that's how I look at you. That's how your energy is very soft. It's very safe. And we need so much more of that in our generation that's going through so much collective trauma right now. And we're going through so many changes as a collective and we need love and support and safe spaces. And you are creating that space for people. And it is so, so appreciated and so needed. I want to end with this. What advice would you give to this upcoming generation? I would say... Gosh, I'm pausing because I feel like they have advice for me because they're so brilliant, Mm -hmm. to be honest. Um, I'm a big fan of Gen Z, um, if you haven't been able to tell already. But (laughs) I, (laughs) they're just brilliant. They're like... They are. They're just so open. They're so much much more than what we could have ever imagined or wanted to be. It's like, yes, you guys are... I can't wait for the future president for their generation. Right? Me too. I keep thinking about that too. And I don't know if you've been noticing, you know, with with your own child since she was younger, but like with my nephew, he he was like two and my sister and I would look at each other because of things he would say. And we would be like, how? I couldn't have possibly like at two known something like that. They're just brilliant. Um, but I would tell them, gosh, there's so many things I want to tell them, but more than anything, take a pause, take a break, take a beat. 
Um, especially right now, their minds are developing and they're developing in a world that's on fire. And my desire for them is that they may be able to find gentle spaces to exist in that are apart from everything that's happening in the world and in their very social media-esque kind of lives. Because it's the pauses that we as the millennials, Gen X and beyond have not been intentional about or have even known to integrate into our lives. So my hope for them is that they can integrate those pauses in a very intentional way and that those pauses can help them absorb their lives in a way that doesn't feel indigestible, but that feels palatable enough to live through um, because life is hard and, and we really need those pauses. Dr. Bouquet, thank you. Uh, thank you for the continued work that you're doing, for the the soft landings that you are <laughs> helping others to achieve. And, you know, a lot of this work is free. You know, it, it's it's something that you people can go on your on your page, they can follow you. They're they're getting tea time and free advice, which is brilliant, by the way. Um thank you. your new book, Break the Cycle. Um, we're going to link it for everybody. And I cannot wait for you guys to be able to read this important book. Um, I think that if we can heal our lineage and and it stops with us, we really do have the power. Each each person has the power to heal collective trauma. And even if you're somebody that has trauma, you really do have the power to make generational differences. I mean, imagine if our ancestors had this information. Imagine if... Um, you know, our ancestors had the resources that we had today, how would the world look so different? And I think if we can understand that we can potentially change the outcome in the future of what this world looks like, why not do it? And Mm -hmm. it it might just start with just reading the book and start there. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. 